welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange with Leander Young, where we dig into conversations with seasoned musicians to discuss their life, art, and the faith of jazz as they see it. In this episode, we interview a trumpet player, educator, composer from Spokane, Washington, Jared Hall. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange. Today, we have Jared Hall with us. Sir, thank you for joining us. Leander, thanks for having me, man. I'm really looking forward to this conversation with you. Mm-hmm. And could you tell the people a short summary about yourself and then we get into it? Sounds good. Yeah. Yeah, I've been playing the trumpet since I was about 10 years old. Uh, had a tough start on it, but I had a really, uh, really great elementary band director who didn't allow me to quit and spent some extra time with me. And I just played all the way through grade school and played in a variety of different bands, did did every band I could, the concert band, jazz band, pet band. And I didn't have any teachers. Um, my mom was a single mom. And so she didn't, we didn't have the resources or even the, the outlet to do private lessons. And I didn't, to, to be honest, I didn't even know they existed. But I, I enjoyed playing the trumpet. I also did other things like sports. And eventually, um, through high school, I had a really great mentor by the name of Mike Jones, who just helped me fall in love with the trumpet. He gave me pointers, a little bit of after-school sessions once in a while, just to kind of point me in the right direction. And then I ended up going to school at Whitworth University in Spokane, Washington. That's where I'm originally from. And got to study with Dan Keberly there. And I did my undergraduate degree there in music performance. And then I spent some time in the city after that, just playing around town. Got to play in a variety of uh, local groups there, including Six Foot Swing, uh, the Spokane Jazz Orchestra, um, a few other groups, pickup groups around town, uh, in, in addition to my own small, uh, small band activities. And then I knew I wanted to grow further, so I applied to graduate school, and I eventually got an opportunity and a scholarship to attend uh, Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. And I spent a couple of years there studying with Joey Tartell, uh, one of their trumpet professors there, as well as Pat Harbison and the incredible uh, uh, jazz pedagogue David Baker was teaching at that time, and I got to play in David Baker's last big band at the school there, actually. And at that point, I was a little burned out on school. I had, I had a couple years in between my, my undergrad and my, my master's degree in jazz studies, and I thought, okay, I can either move to a, a big city and start playing music and getting in, integrated into a scene. I can get a job. I was interested in maybe doing some teaching. Or I could apply to some other program and maybe get another degree. But if I was going to do that, I wanted it to be with somebody who was in the field making music and an artist I, I aspired, aspired to grow into and, and wanted to look up to. And so I applied to a couple different schools and I got a full ride scholarship to go to the Frost School of Music at the University of Miami, where Brian Lynch um, was and is currently teaching as the professor of jazz trumpet there. And I got a full teaching assistantship to work with him closely at the school. And I spent three fantastic years there, uh, not only under his tutelage, but also in the Miami music scene, where I got to do much more playing, a lot more opportunities to grow and uh, meet all sorts of different types of musicians from all over, uh, not only only all over the country, but all over the world resided there. So I'm trying to make this as short as I can. I know you said a short summary, but after after Miami, um, uh, had the itch to maybe go back home, get a little closer to family, and uh, so I decided to move not back to to my hometown of Spokane, but Seattle, which is um, kind of a you know a special place in my heart, having visited when I was a kid, and have spent the last six years uh, trying to get integrated with the scene here, making music with people, getting to know the music scene, uh, not only performing-wise, but also teaching-wise. And I've been here since uh, 2015. 
cool, man. It's a good one. <laughs> now, question I was about, I just, something that always worries me. Is I was lucky enough to have private lessons. And you said you weren't able to afford it and everything. So when you actually got to university, was that like a shock? A little bit. Well, as I got, I guess well, I didn't know private lessons existed all through middle school and high school, but late high school, I realized that it was a thing that people did much earlier. So all of a sudden I had this realization that, oh, like I'm pretty late to this. But to be honest, and, and not a lot of people know this, but I, I first started in college as uh, interested in being an architect. I was always interested in design and art. I did a lot of drawing, um, always had a creative side to me. Um, but I found myself spending more time in the music building than in the art building. And I was able to take lessons at that time, and I started to really rapidly improve on the trumpet. I mean, I was still pretty sad, don't get me wrong. I had never had lessons. Um, but m one of my teachers said, you know, you're the most improved in my studio. And I just, I, and I just started to realize that maybe, you know, I need to pursue this music thing a bit more. So that's that was a big realization to me, and um, it kind of put me on the right track because you know my my teacher Dan Keberly, he he realized that my embouchure was all messed up, right? The way that I set my lips and everything, and so um, he got me straightened out with that. And if I hadn't gotten straightened out, I don't know if I'd be playing today. He helped me develop my sound and my whole concept on on just playing the trumpet more than anything else. Okay, because I know people who were quote unquote all state, all region and all that stuff, they get into a top university and then they get a shock that they're not that good. So I must say you handled that far better than most people I know personally. Well, yeah, and that kind of makes me think of a point that you hear sometimes, but you uh you you want you want to be in uh, a big pond, right? <laughs> you don't want to be the yes. best one. And I've always had that mindset, you know, because I've, you have to have a right, the right personality and the right, right mindset, I think, to want to grow if you're, if you're not the best one. And th this is just kind of my philosophy with school. It's like, okay, I kind of made, made it into the Spokane music scene and I got an education here and I could have gone to a graduate school program there. They've got great programs, but Let's go to a different part of the country. Let's study with somebody else who I'm interested in. Let's go to a music school where there's not, you know, five or ten jazz or music majors. Let's go where there's, you know, 70 <laughs> and 1,700 music students, you know. Um, so that that's really important, I think, to to want to grow in music and in, and in the arts in general. Maybe in anything, actually. Mm -hmm. And so people don't get too paranoid of me saying only good things about the university the music scene, and especially conservatories and stuff, I do have a love-hate relationship with them, a lot mm -hmm. of hate for them. Is there anything about it that, that you say is negative? So I'm not just saying... Anything that I can say that's negative? Yeah. Because um, you're still in the scene. As far as teaching? Teaching, playing, you're still in the music scene. So is there anything you have noticed that didn't really affect or help? Yeah, well... I get, this kind of makes me think of a few things. Well, now I'm in this position where I am teaching some college classes and I'm doing some clinics. And and I think, you know, the, the downside is is to, you know, a lot of people who enter that field are just very academic, meaning they spend their time in a little bubble in the conservatory or the university and they're not out on the scene. They're not staying super current with some things happening. Um, but the, the mentors and the teachers that I've always looked up to, they were playing in and around their, their scenes and I would be able to go out and hear them. Right. And that's the way I try to cultivate the way that I operate. I want to be able to not only, you know, walk, you know, talk the talk, but walk the walk. So I'll give a lecture and I'll say, okay, this is how this music works and this is what you need to be listening to. And this is what you want to check out. And then that weekend I'm playing, Right. And I'm able to hopefully execute to the best of my abilities in that space as well. And I think you're starting to see, I think in general, universities move this way where it's like, it's not all about the degree. It's about can you play, can you communicate how this music works 
and pass it on to the next generation. I think that that aspect is starting to go away and that, you know, or starting to come be a positive, whereas, you know, being academic and just talking about it but not being able to execute, that's that's a negative to me. And there's some of that that still exists, you know. Okay, and one thing as a actual teacher right now, a lot of these instruments that are being used nowadays are not being generalized or utilized, I should say, sorry, in popular music today, especially with music right. going more electronic. So what do you think is going to be the going or the coming of string instruments, brass instruments, a lot of stuff that synchronizers use when they're on the road? Yeah, no, that's a great, that's a great question. Well, I don't think the acoustic side of instruments, whether it's brass or woodwinds or anything that can be synthesized will go away necessarily. I think the, the idea, and you've already, you're already hearing music like this uh, currently being produced where there's a synthesis of the two. You're integrating acoustic instruments with electronics, with synthesizers, with looping, um, all of that, I think, will continue. And I think that's an interesting way to go about moving the music a little bit forward, you know, moving it forward and making it interesting um, to go that direction. I'm interested in that going in that direction at some point myself, right? Um, I mean, most of the projects I've done are acoustic and it may be considered more traditional. Um, and that, you know, I'm into that stuff as well. But uh, I don't see expression on a trumpet or uh, or horn or saxophone uh, going away anytime soon. Um, there just might not be as much of it, I think, um, in general. You know, if people can find out how to make beats and electronic music and do it that way, they're gonna they might be spending less time with with the horn, mm-hmm. right? And so they might not get to the top of their 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 level or creativity artistically. If they're spending their time that way, then then with their another instrument, if that makes sense. No, that makes know? perfect sense. But it's just something that makes me always when I speak to people that I know that are doing beat making, as they say it, it's like a lot of them don't know how to play any instruments. Don't even really know any chords. It's just like they press one key, then another key, and this. Oh, that sounds good. And then I do this. So they have no two of the music theory, the counterpoint, or any of that that goes into it. Right, right. And I have some students who are into that, but they also understand the value of understanding the theory and how music functions and how to notate it and all that stuff. And I'm glad to see that, you know, Um, so then they can, you know, start to integrate the two. It just gives them more possibilities, I would say. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, since we mentioned your projects, so scene on the scene. Post scene on the scene. Love it. Okay. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. My out, my song right there. <laughs> so, yeah, it's your favorite song, the title track? Yes. No, Coral Way. Oh, Coral Way. I'm yes. sorry. Coral Way. That's your favorite. Cool. That's my favorite cool. track on it. Okay. Awesome. What what drew you to that? Your drummer. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. So he, I hate to say this once again, because I know there's people who are going to come at me and laugh at me. He did something that I would have done, but better. If he gave me just the melody. So... He sold me on that track. And once again, you're playing great. Now, did you write the whole album? Well, first of all, thank you so much for your kind words. I appreciate it. I didn't compose the whole album. I composed most of the music on the album and did a few arrangements. So the arrangements on here are um, Mating Call by Tad Dameron. Mm -hmm. Also, the great jazz standard, If You Could See Me Now, also by Tad Dameron, pianist. And composer, and then um, also I also did an arrangement of theme from Love Story, and the rest of the tracks are all original compositions by myself. Yeah. So you okay? I gotta give you that, man. I like your writing. <laughs> oh, thank you, thank you. Appreciate that. Are you gonna be one of those West Coast artists who don't come to the East Coast? Uh, I don't know. I don't want to. I don't want to make any promises. We'll see what li- you know. As we know, life can give us a lot of. Twists and turns, you never know where you're going to end up. Um, so we'll see, you know. I just try to, try to wherever I'm at, I just try to make music and continue to be part of the scene. So we'll see what happens, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one other thing I just actually got to go back to. I just forgot. I'm sorry. Sure. 
Because you mentioned no, you okay. went to Frost, and you and that's a big music school. Anyone that's ever been there, they have like a stage right near the pond, and they let artists perform there all the time. That's something I do like about it. So at least they get used to performing in front of people. They could comp- compose and actually perform and see the audience reaction. And that's one of the things I think Frost actually does better than most other universities. And it's literally right near there, the student union, that whole area. And then, yeah, the swimming team and all that stuff is there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you've been there. You've seen this. You've checked out the scene there. Yeah, I mean, there's music everywhere around the school and in the city. Um, it's just very lively. I mean, part of it is just that it's a different culture, you know, uh, cult- uh, different cultural centers coming together. Um, and the weather, you know, helps. The weather you know, helps you can do you can outdoor do that, gigs yeah. uh, pretty much all year long, very comfortably. Um, so, you know, and yeah, they give students outlets to perform all all over the place, actually. It's uh, very thriving. And, and Pete, some, you know, some students on the on the West Coast here, when they're really looking at different music schools, are like, okay, I'm going to apply to uh, the new school and I'm going to apply to this conservatory. I'm like, cool. Like, I know I might seem biased, but check out Frost. See what they have going on there. They, they've expanded their faculty just in the last year or two. Um, it's incre- you know, incredible. They're forward thinking. Um, their artist di- director is now uh, Maria Schneider, I believe. Um, so there's, you know, there's a lot of great opportunity there um, to, to check out what's happening musically and moving forward. And it can be a great scre- springboard for people wanting to, you know, get to New York and but there's a lot of artists there that you might not even have heard of who are just local on the scene, making music and creating music, um, because it's not necessarily a hub for touring musicians trying to come out of New York. You know, no, it's not. Not a lot of people are coming down to South Florida bringing their quintet or their quartet. To be honest, you know. And I'm forgetting his name, and I tried to look quickly, but the guy who played with Gloria is fond that wrote like coming out of the dark in a few of his songs. I know he teaches there. So you get at least some person that mm-hmm. there, the Miami Sound Machine, like he actually was yeah. one of the guys that was writing for her. So he has a big pop resume. So you got people over there who do all that. So that's one thing I got to give credit to the Frost School because people, yeah. I don't talk about it often. Yes, and I say a lot of negative things about conservatories and music schools. But I agree with you 100%. That's another good thing about it, that it's not a hub from just New York of the people trying to bring their trio to here to there and everything. Yeah. Yeah. The scene, the scene is the scene there, which I think is really, you know, you have a lot of creative musicians and there's a lot of history there. Um, and not only music history, but, you know, pedagogy as well. Um, as far as, you know, artists, you know, and teachers, you know, 20, 30 years ago going to school there, you know, my, my trumpet teacher, Joey Tartell, went there. Uh, that's how I kind of st- started getting my mind. You know, he talked about his experiences there. I met a great uh, saxophone player who lived in Spokane for a little while, Todd Del Judas. He went to Miami. He sounded incredible. And and he's he's a great artist and he's teaching now full time. And and I just so I just started hearing these voices. I'm like, OK. I'm going to take notes. Like there's, there's a history here of people coming out of Miami who can really bring the fire and are really creatively minded. And that's the direction I'm looking to, to, to move into. Okay. And what is something that really stuck out to you there? At Miami and my experience there? Yes. You know, it was really just, you know, um, you know, my connection to, to, to Brian Lynch, the trumpet, trumpet player, composer, mentor, Grammy award winning, uh, trumpet player. Um, it was it was really that drew me there and that experience of just being under his wing in a sort of sense. You know, we got to hang out, play. We I'd end up sitting next to him on a big band recording. You know, be in the studio next to Brian Lynch and John Diversa and some other cats in the city, and it's just like, whoa, do I even belong here? You know this incredible opportunity. And, and so it was more like a mentorship at that point. It, I didn't need formal lessons like, okay, this is how you do this. And let's talk about this. It's like, let's, let's play a tune and let's go back and forth. Let's trade, you know, <laughs> let's have a com- musical conversation. This is how you're going to learn or, okay. You know, he's playing at the club, the local club there. I'm going to go down, listen to him. He's going to have me sit in on a couple tunes. Let's see what happens. And those opportunities will stick with me forever. 
Okay. Now, I know, I'm sorry. Back to your album now. So, did you yeah, have yeah. any... <laughs> no worries, no worries. Did you have any problems when you were recording it? Like, any small things, any things that snuck out? Or was it, like, one day in the studio, this track, and that track, that track, and that track? Yeah, that's a great question, because there's a little bit of story behind this. So, it was one day in the studio, just nice. to, to answer that part. Yeah, and it wasn't even a full day, amazingly. But the only way that that could come to fruition is because people should understand that this was a band, or is a band, I should say. We just played last week, weekend, for the CD release with the band. Um, this is a band that was cultivated through a monthly residency at a club called Tula's in Seattle, which unfortunately uh, closed in 2019. And I was given the opportunity when I moved to Seattle for a couple years to perform there. And I used it as a springboard for a project. Little did the, the, the band know. So I hired the, pretty much the same rhythm section every month for two years. And um, ha always had a horn player, kind of a ro rotating cast of a horn player, either tenor or alto saxophone most of the time. And... I used it as a way to cultivate these these compositions, these tunes and arrangements. So pretty much every date, I would bring in an, at least a, tune, a new tune or a new arrangement, and that's how these you know this record came to be about. So when we got to the studio, it's not like okay, here's the first take, we're just sight reading. Okay, we messed up the bridge. Let's okay, let's do the second take. It was like I think we only did two takes on every single tune, um, and then I selected either the first or the second one. And some, and and in the case of you could see me now, we, you know, I took both of them. I thought, you know, I don't know what to do with this. We got a long version, which I I enjoy, but it's you know, it's a little lengthy. Let's do one where we just play one chorus and just focus on melody, right? So the recording process was easy. Uh, the band are all uh, you know professionals. They've been in the studio. They know how everything works. Um, so I had no problems at all. It's really really fortunate to. It was a very easy process to record it. Yeah. Oh, nice. Okay, that's like a perfect scenario, I must say. I was never that lucky that I was able to practice with my band throughout the whole thing or throughout the whole year before. But two things I would like to say on that, just small things. Like, the good thing about streaming and digital stuff is you could release the long version later and there will be losers like me who would listen to the long version. So... yeah get it mixed and mastered and I probably will be checking that out. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad. I'm glad. Yeah. That's, that's what I've been hearing from people, you know, is, is, you know, I like this long version. I'll spend some time with that. But if someone wants to play a little clip, you know, there's a two and a half minute song on there as well. There's a four minute song. So, you know, whatever they want to listen to or whatever they want to play, it's accessible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And another thing, the importance of writing tracks, like you said, you're writing a song every day and just trying it. I'm a big believer of that because most of them you never play again. And I don't, and I've been in a friend's recording session. Like he hired me. Wasn't for much. I was just doing it for him's sake, right? And he yeah. had eight tracks and he only wanted to play those eight tracks. The only problem was four out of those eight were kind of bad. Right. Yeah. So having that extra library is always a good thing. Yeah, a lot of a lot of the artists that I've you know I haven't necessarily been a part of their projects, but I've heard is they'll bring twelve or fifteen compositions into the studio, and they'll or maybe do two days in the studio for something like that, and then they'll select ten, their mm -hmm. ten strongest, right? Um, for this project and any young musicians listening, if you can get a regular gig and a regular band, people who are committed. Um, that's the best way. I think one of the best ways to cultivate a strong musical project. Um, I think it's it's much more difficult to like. Okay, here's these musicians. We haven't really played that much together. Let's do a rehearsal or two rehearsals, and then we're in the studio. And there's nothing wrong with that. That happens all the time too. But if you're just kind of getting going in a young artistic career like my like myself, I feel like I'm just kind of getting going here. That's a great opportunity. If you can get a gig and cultivate something and then document it, I think you're going to be in good shape and you're going to com communicate that musical expression as a band, as a group, as a unified, uh, as a unit, right? Mm -hmm. So did you, uh, did you ever 
I didn't say train, but did you ever live in New York? Or was it pretty much just the cities you mentioned? Did I ever live in New York? Yeah. I never lived in New York. I've been in New York a few times. I've done a, a few little tours with some schools um, and visited there before and, and kind of checked out some clubs, but I've never been able to spend significant time, unfortunately. Okay. Yeah. So the Seattle scene, I know of. I'm not really... I don't know much about it. Let's leave it like that. The Miami scene, I know a lot more. So how would you compare those two? Well, they're very different. And I'm sure every music scene is a bit different um, once you get a feel for it. I mean, when I came to Seattle, uh, you know, I didn't have a lot of connections. I mean, I knew of the city and I knew there was a music scene, but I had to get more current with it. I knew some names, right? And I'd heard these musicians like Thomas Marriott, incredible trumpet player and composer based here, from here, uh, Jay Thomas, who uh, is an incredible trumpet player as well as saxophone. He's a multi-instrumentalist, really, at this point. He plays almost every woodwind instrument I can think of. And so I knew these voices, but I didn't know what was really happening on the scene. So the first year, maybe two years, um, I spent just uh, getting myself integrated with the scene. So going to jam sessions, all sorts of jam sessions, a lot of different jam sessions here, going to people's performances, saying hi, going up to people and shaking hands and saying, hey, sounded great, you know, I play trumpet, you know, if you ever need somebody, I'd love to, to play with you and, and you know, I'd buy their albums, you know, just in, and look them up and figure out where, where their history was. And that's what I'd say about the Seattle scene is there's a lot of history, there's people who've been making music here for 20, 25, 30 years or longer, right? And they're still on the scene today making music and creating projects. Um, so what, what was interesting compared to my experience in Miami, so I showed up to Miami and part of it, I was connected to the school and some mentors there that kind of thrust me in the scene. So I moved there, first week of school, and it's like, hey, show up to this big band gig. Uh, this weekend. I was like, oh, cool. So immediately I started gigging, you know, and, and stayed pretty busy, even though I was doing some studies. In Seattle, I didn't work for maybe a year, a year and a half, okay? Because no one knew who I was and, and no one cared, and that's okay. They had, you have to get to know people, and, and it takes a bit of time. Um, and it's still taking time to get to know people and to get integrated and figure out what's going on. And it's a very creative scene because there's some straight ahead. There's a free jazz scene. Um, there's conduction happening here. There's, I mean, there's a variety of outlets. So it's like checking out all those different aspects and feeling like, okay, where do I fit in? And how can I also um, be a sideman as well as cultivate my own projects? You know, what, what is, where's the best place my voice fits and my music can fit? And Tula's was one of the places that it just made sense and I was given the opportunity to, to pursue. But in general, it just takes a little bit of time, you know, and I imagine it'd be anywhere. You know, if, you, if I moved to New York, if someone who's moves to New York, they're going to have to do the same thing. You got to go to the jam sessions regularly, right? You got to be able to sit in, you got to say hi to musicians, young musicians, old music, older musicians, you got to be open to learning and also just not have any expectations, I'd say, because the person you might, you might, you might meet the first time, you know, they might not pay you any mind. It's like, okay. And they might be your greatest ally in a year. Right. Um, and they might not, they might be the best player on the scene. They might not be the best player on the scene, but they're a great person. They're a great connection. So, you know, sometimes, yeah, I run into that with people, you know, it's like, um, you know, just don't have any expectations, which I know can be hard, right? It's like, because when I first get, you know, you're going to have some expectation, but try to let go of that, you know? Um, you know, for me, it's like, okay, I want to get into the scene. And it just took some time and I had to be patient, I'd say. Wow. And so during that time, I was just, I was going out, but I was practicing and I was writing. And I was also checking out the sessions, uh, not only to be heard and learn, but who do I want in my band? Like, who do I want to play music with? I want to hire that person, you know? So so what do you think mis people misunderstand about the music scene? What do I think people misunderstand about what the music scene? What is something people really misunderstand about the music scene or the jazz scene? Hmm. 
that's a good question. Um, what do people misunderstand about it? I mean, you were just talking about I think, how I think they just need to understand that there's a certain culture to it, you know, that you need to become a part of that culture and that can take time. Like just trying to rush in and, and say, hey, I'm so-and-so, here's my album, um, you know, listen to me or here's my website. I get this now too because I've been here for a few years and, people, you know, I'll play. I'll get an email. Hey, I moved here. I'm a saxophone player. Uh, you know, if you need me, come see, you know, come hire me. And it's like, okay, I don't know your name. I don't, or reputation and maybe they can play, but the best way for them to connect with me and, and if they want to play with me is show up to my performance, hang out, maybe, you know, maybe sit in and, and, you know, if I get to meet them on the break, I, I did that once this one cat, Unfortunately, he doesn't. He doesn't live here anymore. He he came to the club. He was listening. He had his flute, and and I got to talk to him on the break. And I said, "Hey, you know, the club's starting to get empty at the end of the night. Come sit in on the last tune. Sounded incredible." And he had heard both sets. He had heard my music. And I say, "Hey, you know, come play next time." So I'd say, you you know, even though we have all this digital access to connect with people, you're not really truly connecting with them unless you show up. You've got to put in the effort. Put in the work is another thing we, we hear often. And I think that's one thing that can be mis misunderstood is people, especially here, when you show up, that that means a whole lot. And you show up again and again and again, people start to take notes. Ah, okay, they're here for the fourth week in a row at this session. They're serious. Okay, I give you that. Uh... But there's a whole other side of that. So there's some people who do better networking in person. There's some people who do better networking via social media. Mm -hmm. And that's something that, how should I put it? But yet at the same time, you don't really understand what you're really going to get. Because, you know, you can mm -hmm. edit it to sound a certain way. And then I've been to jam sessions where that guy that you invite to the stage will announce the one song that he practiced all week just to make sure he sounds good on that one track and then you hire him for something else and he sounds like yeah <laughs> <laughs> there's that too there's that too and you know um and 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 hopefully they they take that as a lesson like okay they call this tune i tried to get by and fake my way through it and i was not making it i need to go go home and shed so the next time i can i can bring that and make a lesson out of it um, there, there is that aspect of it too. And I'm not saying the digital component is bad. You know, a lot of times I'll connect with somebody and I'll, you know, connect with them on Facebook or Instagram. Uh, if I have their email address, I'll say, Hey, it was, it was great to connect with you. Um, you know, if you're doing a show, please let me know. Um, all that goes a long way too, you know, so it, it doesn't mean that that's not there, but you get random emails. Hey, come check out this show. Or, or hey, I want to be in your band or make music. It's it's a little harder that way, I think. Okay. Now, one thing I need to ask you. Actually, a few, mm -hmm. but one. How did you get that gig with Chick Corea? Oh, with Chick Corea. So that was part of the Henry Mancini Institute, mm -hmm. um, which is part of the Frost School of Music. So they it was like a sixty-piece orchestra uh, with jazz band. And it was this this epic concert, um, and Chick was a part of that that project. I think it's like uh, Jazz at the Philharmonic. I think is the name of the album and the DVD. So it was a kind of a collaborative thing with the school. And I didn't play any big role besides being in the orchestra, but it was incredible just like see Chick there. And I didn't get close to him or anything, but he was in, interacting with a lot of other composers who were close to him and other piano players and just to get his vibe and just to kind of like point an ear that direction and hear what they were check, you know, talking about was interesting. And then just to watch him perform and watch him communicate with the other rhythm section members when it came down to the small group moments of the, of the, of the pieces, it was just incredible. Yeah. Just incredible, man. I'm so so sad that he's he's gone now. You know, I enjoy his work so much, and, and his work. There's still more work coming out on Chick, and I'm sure oh, there'll yeah. be much more. Yeah. yeah, he's gonna have a catalog for the next twenty years coming out bit by bit by bit. Yeah, yeah. How about George Benson? How did you get that one? 
George Benson. So that's a fun, that's a funny story as well. So um, I showed up. It was again through through connections through Frost, and I showed up at the school. And I think, yeah, two weeks later, it said, "Hey, you're doing this recording session with George Benson," and it was just the big band. And I think they later put strings on it. And I showed up, and I could read pretty well. Right, I had to do an audition for Frost where I, I played through all the bands and had to sight read, so I could read okay. Mm-hmm. But I showed up and we got set up, um, and they're like, "Okay, you know, here's the first piece." We played through it, and they said, "Next," and I'm like, "Next," and I'm like, "Oh, they recorded that. That was it. There's just one take. That was and it. We did that for we did that for an hour and a half. Yeah, we just one piece at a time." And and there at that moment, that was the first time where I had realized, okay, this is serious. I'd never been in that scenario where it's like literally we're going to do first takes and sight read all this music that I've never seen. And I was playing like I was playing like third or fourth trumpet. It wasn't like I was in a huge position, but it was like it was serious. And that's when I realized, okay, this is the level. And this is what I wanted. That's the level that I wanted. I wanted to be in that position and learn that lesson. And so the next piece I realized, okay, we're recording. Okay, let me be <laughs> as much more on top of this as I can be. Um, and so that was that was a great experience as well. But it was like a three-hour session, booked for a three-hour session, and it was like an hour and a half. Because literally we just read and maybe someone had to do a punch, but that was it. Yeah. So do you like being a recording artist more or a pit? Well, I like to be working. <laughs> Because the answer, answer. Uh, as a work, you know, um, I'm I'm a I think of myself as an aspiring artist, and I like to be working as a musician. To answer your your question, so recording sessions, big band sessions, yes, I do all that. Cultivating my own project, yeah, of course, I think that's really important if you're you're an artist. But I'll also play in the theater. You know, I'll play second trumpet or first trumpet for a show. Um, and here in Seattle. Uh, there's a big demand for that. So the shows that they produce here are pretty much equal to the quality that you'd find on Broadway. They're they're that high caliber and that big of a budget of shows. So I'll do that for a month occasionally. Um, yeah, I just like to be working and playing the trumpet because I have a love for the trumpet. And and I think that, you know, if you can be a working musician, then it gives you some ground to cultivate your own creative projects, which... You know, in Seattle, it's not like I'm playing with my own band every week here, right? It might be, a mo- you know, once a month or a few times a month. Um, so there's other projects I want to be a part of and other other musics I want to take take a role in. Okay. So what would be your ideal project, your dream project? Oh, man. <laughs> so this is a bit of a fantasy because it's so, you know... It seems so far out of reach in today's, uh, you know, economy and, and climate for recording and the music business. But you hear those albums, um, you know, Clifford Brown with strings, and, and Joe Magnarelli, great trumpet player. He's got an album with strings. Um, even Blue Mitchell did an album with strings, right? And you, you, there's some modern trumpet players today, like Chris Bodie, occasionally plays with an orchestra. I would like to eventually do a project like that where it's like that's that's the, the the background and the tapestry that you're able to use in order to be creative. But those, as we know, those are big budget projects and and huge endeavors. But, you know, it just feels a bit distant, but we'll see what happens. Right. You know, I don't want to say it's it's definitely possible. You right? never know. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So where do you think jazz will be in 10 years? Where do I think jazz will be in 10 years? I don't know. That's a great question. Um, I think it will continue. I think it will exist. And I think it will uh, continue to be um, exploratory in nature. Like the creative side will not diminish. And that's going to look a lot of different ways. Right? I think the thing that I... The, the big the big things against the music, I think, is just the business in a certain sense because it's going to take people stepping up, spending the money, spending the energy to record, 
and to perform. And there's not always, you know, a big return on that. And so there's musicians I know who I just think, man, it, I, I wish you had a record, but it might not make sense for them or they might not have the, the, the ability in different ways to be able to do that. And so that's really sad to me because there's something lost in that. So anybody who pr produces music or an album today, and I'm not just talking like a physical album, I'm talking just producing music and, and putting it out there and, and making it of high quality, um, you know, that takes a lot, I'd say. And I look up to people who are doing that. So as long as that continues in some facet, the music will, will continue to grow. And, you know, I try to try to keep on the scene. I'm in my 30s now. Um, so I'm keeping up with people who are older than me, about the same age as I, myself, and then also some young, younger up-and-coming trumpet, trumpet players and musicians as well, you know, who hopefully I get to meet and hear in person. Um, so I think it has a bright future. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't think it looks dark or, 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 or sad or anything. And, you know, the way that people are getting into some video and audio, really high quality audio and video and some streaming options, I think is bringing the music to more people who might not have access to it. And I think that's positive, right? Um, you can hear a musician now who you might only be able to hear at the blue note, right? But now you can you can stream their concert, right? And there's and more and more venues are getting into this. There's a venue here getting into this too, right? So I think that can be a positive. There are negatives to this, I think, but but I think, but, but I think that's a positive too. Where that, but what's that? I think the more negatives than positives on that. I agree. Yeah, I think there's definitely both, but I think more people hearing the music and being exposed to that. That's the thing that we're up against because if you turn on pop radio or, or things that are being played in the gym or, or think, you know, just at being out and about, you're not going to be exposed to that. Maybe at a Starbucks, you know, it's like 10, you know, 10 years ago I was at Starbucks and I was hearing Tom Harrell and I knew what record it was. I'm like, Oh, that's hip or John Coltrane. Right. Um, but there's very few spaces like that. I know pop artists that complain about getting airtime mm -hmm. because when you're a pop artist, now you're competing against the Sony budget. You're competing against the RCA oh, yeah. budget, uh, whatever, you know what I mean? You're comparing against those people. So oh, now yeah. you're fighting for that limited air slot in that one hour block and every block, let's just say it's Beyonce, not trying to pick on her, but if she has a song, they're playing it every hour. So now you got to get in that hour block and that's less time with their commercials and everything. Right. So that's right. a different level of competitive nature that it is. we're lucky yeah. jazz doesn't have, but at the same time, jazz kind of needs. <laughs> well, I think, yeah, I think, you know, yeah, the pop field has got to be, I'm not super hip to it, but it's, yeah, it's got to be super competitive because these are people who've who've been around and have a clear reputation and they have some big actors and budgets behind them. Right. But I think you see this a little bit in jazz, you know, it's like the current, the current records being played, um, on some radio and I get the playlists, right. And, you know, Kenny Garrett just dropped a new album. Terrence Blanchard just dropped a new album, right. Uh, Chad LB just dropped a new album, right. These are the names and the voices that people, probably know and have known for a while and then there's jared hall and it's like okay first of all it's like wow it's great that i'm somehow being played alongside these artists it's a little humbling um but again you know kenny garrett's album is going to rise to the top much quicker because he has this huge career right and this output so the if you're going to get into music and 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 jazz and creative music and black american music it's a long game right it's something that you have to continually invest in you know if i get an opportunity to do the next project hopefully it's stronger hopefully it has bigger impact it brings it's brought to more listeners it's a long it's a long game if you want to be a part of a part of this i think and that's what those artists have done with their careers i think the biggest problem jared hall has is people like Freddie Hubbard still being played. Right. Well, I love Freddie. 
Trust me, I could go on a whole thing about it. Uh, Red Clay? Think too. One of my favorite albums. I think they'd even practice. It sounds like they didn't practice. I just love the energy in it, okay? But oh, the yeah. fact that I still hear that on the radio, and that I think was recorded, and I know someone's going to butcher me on this, 68. So, <laughs> we're in 2021 right now. Right. Yeah, I mean, you hear that too. I mean, with 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 jazz, is, and I and I hear that on the on some radio stations as well. I'll tune in, and there's nothing wrong with that because people love that stuff. But yeah, it definitely dominates the airwaves. Okay, there's there's kind of blue again. Yeah, kind of blue. Right? Oh, that's another one. <laughs> 1959. It's like okay, so you know, or or there's you know there's Charlie Parker again. I love all that stuff, man. And I'm always sharing that with my students, and I still listen to that, and I listen for something new each time. But you're definitely right is when on some stations, that's 80%, 90% of their programming. That's that's something that's affecting new artists and new creativity and, and people being exposed to the music as well. You know, So you're right. You're right, Leander. That makes it a little difficult. Just one thing, because there's this one guy that loves to fact check me on every episode. Yes. Okay. Sure. It was May 1970. You don't need to email me on that. Okay, but back to you now. <laughs> okay, so yeah, I believe that is a problem. Yeah. And I don't see any other style of music doing that. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, unless it's like a, a station dedicated, like yeah, music dedicated. from the 90s. Yeah, classic rock, right? And maybe, you know, I don't know if jazz is big enough to go that direction. It's like, okay. Jazz from the fifties. This is a radio station just dedicated to yeah, that I era. Or here's here's jazz from two thousand on. I mean, wouldn't that be cool if there was like, you know, and that's a, that'd be a huge catalog, well, right? Like, FM. They're not going to make well, the yeah, money. They're, probably not FM. Yeah, they're <laughs> not going to be able to make enough money to support that. Probably so, not FM, so but like, I'll pick on Sirius F, Sirius XM. Okay. Yeah. They got a station, you know, real jazz. Okay. Mm-hmm. They try their best to incorporate a lot of modern stuff, but still, the people who listen to that want to hear stuff before 1970, on average. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And then you got to compete with Winton, sir. I know. That's, a, that's another person you have to compete with as a trumpet player. I could go on other people, but yeah, you get the idea. So now that's. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I have a, I have a little yeah, yeah, you're right. I think I have a little bit of a different perspective. I guess I don't even think about it as competing because I you know, no one can compete against Winton. Really? Like, you think Winton's the best trumpet player right now? No, no, no. What I'm what I mean is is all I can do is like he's he's uh, he's at a certain level and that's Winton, right? Mm-hmm. And the goal, at least my goal, I can't speak for other people is not to be like Okay, I can play just as fast and and high and get around the horn and get a big sound in a certain way like him. All I can do is say, okay, that's Winton's voice, and here's my voice, and I'm trying to cultivate my voice further. And I think, because if I had that mindset, the way that I'm built and who I am, if I viewed it like, okay, I have to be just as good as Winton or have to be like this next upcoming artist, I just probably would put the horn down. And then you're just you're just done, right? Um, so there is that aspect of like, okay, there's other voices. They're playing Freddie Hubbard. They're playing Winton, um, but it does. I don't know if it, it necessarily invalidates your voice. Um, one thing that we're really fortunate here on the local station mm-hmm. is there are programs dedicated to, to presenting new music, which is awesome. There's a new uh, show. You know, Saturday show, the new music review, and and uh, with Matt Jorgensen, who's who's been playing the new record as well as other new releases uh, across the country, and then we also have Jim Wilkie here locally, who plays a Sunday afternoon show dedicated specifically to music of Pacific Northwest artists producing new music, and so there are some outlets. It'd be nice if, like in general. You know, they would play new music from artists throughout the whole week. But there are some dedicated shows that we have here that I'm really fortunate. To, I'm really thankful for because I know that doesn't exist in some places. Um, Miami NPR? had the same thing with WDNA. Oh. I don't know if you're hip to that station. I know it's a station. great radio station. They'll have in-house sessions that are live. They'll play new releases from from art local artists. And they're always playing. They're playing a lot of new music and a lot of different types of music as well. You know, under the category jazz. So, I mean, 
I wish they had something like that in New York. I'm not going to say the station. They try, but they're not doing it to the level I would like for them to do. So, yeah. Right. That's right. one thing you have over there. Okay, yeah. so since you're there, we're there, local musicians, who do you like in the Seattle scene right now? Mm. That's a great question. Um, well, I might have said this a little earlier. I'm always trying to like be hip to what came before and what's current now, and then maybe some some upcoming voices that I hear and, and see performing. Um, and some of these are the musicians that I really enjoy playing playing with. Um, I mentioned uh, Tom Marriott and Jay Thomas. They're kind of like figureheads in the in the in the jazz community and especially as a, in the trumpet community here. So I'm always looking looking towards them. Um, but then there's some young young up, upcoming musicians. There's drummer Xavier Le Couturier. Check him out. He's got a new uh, a new record out just a, a few years ago now, and he's doing some new projects as well, alongside pianist Dylan Hayes. And they're producing new music, and they're actually doing a tour I think this week of the new Northwest with a new band, Meridian Odyssey. Um, and they're these are these are these are guys in their twenties composing and creating music, and and it's just amazing that they're out there they're doing it right. So I'm kind of keeping my eye on on what's what's a little older than I, you know, because there's a lot of lessons to learn here. I'll go listen to uh, Marriott play and I'll, and I'll hear him play a tune. It's like, oh, I don't know that tune. I better go learn that one, right? Or check out his newest project. Um, there's also some uh, upcoming uh, female voices that I really uh, enjoy, uh, including uh, Maria Albero, Marina Albero on piano. Mm-hmm. Um, very creative artist producing music and she's uh, you know, once in a while she's doing a live stream playing solo piano and it's enjoyable to see her live as well because she's so interactive with her audience and just like she has a spirit of just love and welcoming that you don't get from a lot of artists and she's she's moving forward in her career as well after having a family um, for, for most of her life so um there's there's a lot going on that people might not even be hip to. I I'd say the the some things that are sad is like trying to keep young musicians here can be difficult, right? Cuz they want to, you know, they want to go to bigger bigger you know cities, New York or or LA or or Chicago and that's totally cool. And so trying to keep them here can be difficult, I think, you know. It's like we need more upcoming young musicians to stay here and make music. Um yeah, I could go through a, a long list of artists, but those are just some at the forefront of my mind that I see doing things that I'm like keeping track of. And I think you're going to hear more from those artists. Okay. And one other thing I'm just curious about. Mm-hmm. What do you do when you're not playing the trumpet? What do I do when I'm not playing the trumpet? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, I well, first of all, I should say that music is my full-time career path so if i'm not playing or practicing the trumpet i'm usually teaching and teach privately i'll do clinics around the northwest um i'll teach i've taught at a, a few colleges in the local area so some you know depending on the semester or the quarter i'll be teaching um, some college classes and, and curating resources for that or for my students um I just put out a book called The Piano Grip System during 2020. So I spent 2020 kind of finishing that project. It's like, you know, I won't talk about it too much, but it's like an approach to harmony and piano for horn players or people who are not coming from a harmonic instrument to learn more about chord structure, how harmony functions, how to learn tunes and and become functional hearing, seeing and feeling things at the piano in a certain way that can inform your composition and improvisation. Um, so I'm, I'm doing some writing. I'm working, I'm trying to work on my trumpet pedagogy and it's turning out to be like, is this trumpet pedagogy or is this jad pedagogy or is it a blend? So it might be a one big book or maybe two, two books. I'm not sure. That'll be, that'll take a while. And I'm always composing and I also have a son. His name is Ezra. He's three years old. So he keeps me busy a lot of the time. A lot of time I'll I'll be hanging out with him, you know, during the day, and then I got to teach a lesson, 
and and make sure he's all taken care of and we get to spend some time together. So that's that's a balancing act I'm trying to pull off while being a musician as well. Um, so for me, it's like it's a full time thing. Um, and I guess maybe non musical things. I try to hit the gym, try to keep myself physically active and take care of myself. Um, and and you know do a lot of reading. And, and also, you know, checking out, like, as you know, last year or two, try to keep up with interviews, you know, podcasts, clinics online, YouTube is a great resource for some of these things. And I was trying to learn and listen. Um, so I spent a lot of time just like listening to different resources that are out there too now. Okay. I was just curious because this was a very odd point interview. I like that. Always oh, came I'm back glad. to the trumpet. We always came back to jazz. We didn't sidetrack too much. So I was just curious, like, what else? But that's good, man. Oh, cool. <laughs> cool. Thanks, man. <laughs> so before we go, you know what I mean? Like, to give a shout out, show respects to the artists who came before us. I'm going to yeah. tell you an instrument and two artists. Choose one and tell us why. On drums. Max Roach or Lenny White? Max Roach. How come? Clifford Brown, Max Roach. Okay. Studying Brown. <laughs> yeah. Their their collaboration, man, had a, just a, a huge influence on me. You know, studying the music of Clifford, doing transcriptions, listening to those albums, uh, their their interaction and their their band was incredible. Yeah. Okay. On keys. Mm, for you. Art Tatum or Herbie Hancock? Ooh, this is hard. This is hard. Uh, I would have to say Herbie because, I mean, part of the longevity and the transformation of his, his music and creativity is just so impactful. And he's still, of course, creating today. He was actually just in Seattle maybe a month ago. Um, performing live and I've been able to see him live as well uh, I saw him at the Monterey Jazz Fest and I'm, I'm a big Herbie fan and, and the way that he's overlapped with of course trumpet artists you know Miles uh, Freddie Hubbard for the most part come to mind for me um, yeah that's my heart's with Herbie okay on bass Charles Mingus or Christian McBride? Ooh, yeah. I love Mingus, man. I love Mingus. And I always, in my jazz history classes, like he's a big talking point, especially talking about the civil rights movement and his, his impact on, you know, in his conversation musically at that time. Um, but I have to say Christian McBride. Um, you know, I don't know. It's, that's a hard one because they're so different and they're both impactful. Um, I probably have to go with Christian. Um, I don't know. Cause I just think of Christian, you know, I listen to his jazz night in America and he's always, he's played with the, you know, the young lions, right. Or maybe he was considered one of the young lions, I think. Um, and is still playing with younger musicians and older musicians. He's so soulful. Right. I hope to get to play, you know, with him at some point in my career. Just, you know, doesn't have to be a record. Just play a gig at one point with Christian. It'd be just such an honor. Okay. On saxophone. Uh, Coleman Hawkins or J.D.? You mean J.D. Allen? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I'd have to say Coleman Hawkins. No, that was unfair to JD. Uh, let me give it a different one. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I love JD. Yeah, no. I love JD, man. But yeah, that's a that's a tough one. <laughs> okay, Coleman Hawkins or John Coltrane? Mm. John Coltrane. Yeah, John Coltrane, man. And and part of you know, part of my love for Coltrane is actually related to the album. You know, Mating Call was originally recorded with Tad Dameron and John Coltrane. 
right? Um, and that's, you know, that's where I first, you know, heard Lee Morgan as well, the young Lee Morgan on Blue Train, right? Um, but also the, a, a composition on the album Force for Good. That's something that Coltrane said in an interview towards the end of his life when he became, you know, like many musicians, not all, but they become a little more aware spiritually and, and, and things beyond this universe, beyond this world. Coltrane was in that space musically and also articulated that from time to time uh, vocally as well. And in this interview, he just says, I want to be good for this world. I want to be a force for good. That's what my music is, right? So a force for good on the album, that's that's kind of my nod to Coltrane. And I think that's so important um, to consider at all times. And for all the jazz you know, fans listening, the chord changes on that tune are also related to his composition, Lazy Bird. So if you hear Lazy Bird from Blue Train and kind of compare it to Force for Good, you're going to hear some connection as far as the harmonic progression. So, yeah. Okay. And on trumpet. Mm, oh, no. I know. We're going to go with Kenny Baker. Mm. I'm sorry, what was that? Kenny Baker or Harry James? Kenny Baker. Yes. I'm not super hip. I don't know. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. That's yeah, fair. Yeah, that's that's a tough one. You might have to throw me. I'm gonna have to do some homework there. Okay. I'm okay. A, of course, I of course know Harry James, but yeah. Okay, let you get mad at me. Let him get mad at me. Lee Morgan or Wynton Marcellus? Oh man. <laughs> well, I have to say I I admire them both, and I've listened to them both so much. Um, and for me, you know, like I was talking about my, my band director, Mike Jones, you know, he gave me uh, a, one of a jazz, the first jazz, one of the first records I, I ever got, but especially of Lee Morgan, the Sidewinder. And I listened to that. This is a time where, you know, it's like the Internet was just starting out and it was a seat, you know, all we had were like CDs, right? That's all I had. And so I'd, I'd listen to it and radio, I should say, but I listened to that thing so much. And then I would go to the store and buy every Lee Morgan album I could find, right? So I have to say that he's he's been a huge influence for me. But again, I, would, I guess I'd have to say Winton because the music, he's transformed the music and he's continued to do a lot of different things um, and develop you know, a diverse catalog of music and the work he's done in education and mentorship. I mean, I know that's maybe not, you know, directly related to the related to the sounds that we hear, but in a certain way, he's he's helping the next generation of musicians and influencing them. So I, I guess maybe that's might be part of my consideration too. I've listened to a lot of Winton. I know we were talking about him earlier as like being this you know glass ceiling in a sort of sense, um, and you know like like live at the House of Tribes, man, like that album. I can't tell you how much I've listened to that album. And and that's on YouTube too. You can see how everybody's interacting and the and the love in that room uh, for the music. So that's a tough one, you know. When it's either or, I would just have to say Witten on that one. Okay, that's fair. It's like I said, it's up to you, it's not me. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so can you tell everyone your social media, your website, how to reach you, et cetera? Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much. So you can connect with me on Facebook and Instagram at the handle at Jared Hallways, at Jared Hallways. And uh, my website is uh, www.jaredhall.net. That's J-A-R-E-D-H-A-L-L.net. And there you can access music, uh, educational resources, all sorts of different things. And you can also contact me there if you want to shoot me a message or an email. Okay. Well, sir, thank you for joining us today. It means a lot. Oh, Leander, thank you so much, man. It's a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks for uh, giving me these questions and the opportunity to speak here today with you. Mm-hmm. Well, everyone, this is Leander from Improv Exchange. Thank you. Have a good day. That's that on jazz. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Improv Exchange. 
please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, please be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Improv Exchange. <laughs>